Hey gang, welcome back for another episode of your favorite regenerative ag podcast, Ranching Reboot. On this episode, I'm joined by Jim Mundorf, a native of Southwest Iowa. He produces a YouTube channel called Lonesome Lands. Jim is also a longtime advocate for the cow-calf producer and shares his valuable insights with us. In this episode, we discuss feedlots and their reasonable scale, transparency and traceability, and we even compare CAFOs to prisons a little bit. Tune in for an engaging conversation on the future of ranching and cattle production. This episode is brought to you by C90 Ocean Minerals, the first step in regenerative agriculture. C90 offers a complete spectrum of natural minerals and trace elements that feed soil biology, enzymes, and fungi to help regenerate your soil matrix and improve soil fertility. Herd and pasture health starts with soil health, and C90 restores the optimal mineral balance needed for healthy, productive soil. Naturally unlock locked-up fertilizer nutrients, expand root networks, and reduce drought risk, and invest equally in this season and the ones to come. Give us a call today, and our experts will help develop a complimentary custom program that fits your operation. Call 717-580-1458 or visit www.sea-90.com. Available nationwide and around the world. Well, Jim Mundorf, good morning, sir, and welcome to Ranching Reboot. How are you? Good. Ready uh, to get going. <laughs> yeah, we've had uh, we've had just a few audio difficulties, so we're getting going a few minutes late. So why don't you start us off, Jim? Um, tell us a little bit about where you're at and tell us a little bit about your operation. Yeah, so my address is McClelland, Iowa. Um, I grew up outside my, my uh, family farms and has uh, cattle outside of the town of Griswold, Iowa. Um, and that's where I grew up on a farm. Um, and my family's been there in that area since 1870s. Um, and so both sides of my family have go back farming about as far as you can trace them. Um, and so, yeah. And, um, what I do is I have a business called the drove or yeah, the Drover house. And, um, I sell longhorn mounts and I build stuff out of longhorns and all that. And that's what I've done for 17 years now since 05. So that would be 18 almost. Um, and so, and then here five years ago, I started Lonesome Lands um, kind of just on a whim. And, and I've kind of, I haven't been real consistent with it or whatever, but um, that's probably where you found me. And, and with the, like you were saying, the YouTube stuff, um, and just doing more of that kind of media type stuff, uh, that I'm interested in with the cattle. But, uh, as far as working on the farm, I've, I've worked on my parents' farm and with the cattle since I was born, really, uh, I took a few years off there during college, but once I got back and started the Drover house, I was still working there. And then I've worked more and more kind of, my dad's gotten older. And, um, so I've, I've been around more, um, just working with the cattle pretty much all my life. So. And I didn't know you were in the, in the longhorn mount trading business. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I don't talk about lonesome lands on with the drover house stuff. And I don't talk about the drover house stuff much with the lonesome lands. So I kind of, I don't know. I'm not, I don't cross promote, but it's, it's kind of a weird philosophy I have about like coming from the, it's, it's kind of an art deal. You know, I, I sell sculptures and furniture and, and stuff like that. And so coming from that area, I've always kind of told myself, 
I don't want to be those people that makes a living because I push my stuff so hard on friends and family and all that kind of stuff. So I almost make a point to not push it. Um, and I think that philosophy, because, you know, people do that and it, it's kind of, then all of a sudden it's, you know, they run out of people to sell to. And so I wanted to be able to sell just based on my work. Um, unfortunately, I think that's came into Lonesome Lands a little bit too, just because I don't promote it a ton personally. I just want, I want other people to share it, you know, if they like it to share it enough to, to kind of prove its worth instead of just, you know, all the, all the crap you see out there with people pushing their different stuff on social media and stuff. So. Well, I think there's something to be said about guys that live this lifestyle and agricultural lifestyle. We tend to not be great at self-promotion. Like everybody that I've had on the podcast, that's, you know, a farmer or rancher first that also does, you know, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or YouTube, everybody kind of says the same thing. It's like, yeah, maybe I don't quite promote it as good as I should have. <laughs> or, you know, they probably don't. don't have the same like philosophy. I mean, a lot of them are probably like, they probably don't care as much. I mean, I really want to push. I mean, really kind of my main focus is Lonesome Lands. It's not where I'm putting a ton of my time right now, but it's what I think about the most. Um, and so, I mean, it is something I really want to grow. But I think that that same philosophy has has kind of leaked over. But it, it there's something to be said for it too because it it proves your worth a little bit. You know, you're not getting views because you know you're begging for them. You're getting views because people actually want to see it. And that's that's kind of came over from from my work. You know, I wasn't selling because people liked me or or what I was doing. They liked the work. So making content that resonates with your listeners and makes them want to share it. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, that's exactly. And that's what to shoot for. And, you know, I've been in, I still feel like I'm young because when I started out, I was younger than, you know, in the horns and the artwork and going to different shows and stuff. I was younger than everybody else there pretty much. But, um, and now that I'm older, I'm, I feel weird giving advice, but it's like, I mean, that's the way if you can't get people to promote you word of mouth, you might as well just give up really. <laughs> I used to pay a ton for advertising um, for a few years. And then once the word got out there, now I'm, I can't really keep up with the horn business. So um, yeah, I mean, if you just always have to continuously pay to promote and push um, and, and you can't tell that the word of mouth getting out there, it's, that's going to be tough. So it's what to shoot for, I guess, is what I'd say. Maybe we'll tie that back into beef marketing later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about Lonesome Lands. Right. So I started, um, like I said, it's probably been five years, but I haven't real been very consistent with it. Um, and so, and I just kind of thought there's not really a, I've, so I went to school for communications and I, I wanted to be, you know, in media somewhat when I was for a short time there in college. And then I kind of realized the people in my classes and the professors and, you know, you learn about who's in media. And I just realized I didn't want anything to do with the people <laughs> that were in it at the time. And at the time that was 2000, early 2000s. So then, you know, if you wanted a job, you got an entry level job at probably local something, or, you know, I was at the time, 
really interested in motocross. And so that's kind of where I was started. Um, and, and, or that's why I got into journalism kind of, because I was going to do that stuff. But anyway, um, so I've always had this interest in media and then I did the Drover house for years and, and it got to a point kind of where we are, where you don't have to get a job to be part of media. Um, you know, if you have a phone, you can have a media company really. Um, and, and so I just remember one day I was like, and I've, I've wanted to write for a long time and I had something written kind of about the Drover house, um, which is the horn business. Um, and so I sat down and wrote that and I wrote a couple just blogs about just pretty lighthearted, um, stuff, just kind of given an agricultural perspective. Um, and so kind of focusing on me because I've followed media, you see these other industries like sports for years has, has more of a laid back media outlets. You know, there was all these blogs and, and different stuff with sports. And I don't feel like ag had, something that was real widespread. I mean, there, there's been different stuff like that, but, and I thought, you know, mine would be, that's where I kind of started. And then as I got going, I realized there's some very serious issues that no one's paying attention or, you know, at the time, at the time, really very few people were paying any attention to. And so that's when I kind of changed how I was doing things. Like if you go back to the beginning of the blog, it's pretty lighthearted and, and just kind of putting my perspective out out there well five compared years to ago, now where it's pretty informative i think and and not sometimes not too lighthearted. well five years ago uh this business the beef business the cattle business looked completely different yeah i mean yeah and that's and i've it's kind of changed with that you know but i mean the first thing i've been i did it for a few months and and had a few got a couple quite a few views really for what i was doing and then i wrote I stumbled across this lab meat um, company and I wrote about that and it just blew up and it happened to be at the same time as the NCBA convention, I think. And that helped out because it really got a lot of people talking and there was people there that just started sharing it. And um, because no one had heard, no one, very few people had written about it, about how Tyson and Cargill had invested. And that's kind of where I, where most people first saw me if they've been following for a long time. Okay. So you mentioned uh NCBA. Did you go to uh the great cattle con a couple of weeks ago? No, no. I thought that's maybe what you were wanting. So that was my most recent thing I've written about. Um, I don't I think know. It was appropriately named. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I don't, I mean, they called it that I suppose for years. And now that, it's coming out that they're it's kind of run by a bunch of con men. I think they've stuck with it <laughs> begrudgingly. I bet I bet they're like, oh, we're gonna call it that again. <laughs> well, I mean, I get what they're you know trying to go for, like cattle convention. Yeah, it's uh, no, I it it's a cattle con, and they're the ones conning us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so what the. Uh, I take it you're probably not a member of NCBA. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'd rather I, light my money on fire. Have you ever heard about how NCBA can kind of maybe, how, how they get some of their members? The okay. fair share dues? Uh, 
I, I don't know if that's the program, but uh, this, so this happened to one of my neighbors, another one of Steve Stratford and I's mutual friends. Um, he came to me kind of last fall and he's like, hey, I got a letter from NCBA asking about dues and I don't ever remember signing up and they're wanting me to renew. So he said he went back and he looked and there were some cattle that he fed the year before in a yard that was affiliated with NCBA. And in order to feed on that yard, you had to be a member. And since he wasn't a member, they just went ahead and signed him up. Yeah. Well, it's weird how it, and I'm not sure how it works. And it actually works in diff, different, in different States. Cause I just talked to a guy who's from Nevada and he had cattle fed in Nebraska. And now he's, I mean, his words were, I guess now I'm a member of Nebraska cattlemen's. Um, Cause yeah, they take, there's a, you know, when you get your, if he would look back on his invoice from them for the feeding. Um, and so what we're talking about, he held, he, he retained ownership, right. And sent his cattle to a feed yard. Yeah. That's yeah. What, I, right. I, yeah. I think and so where I first heard about this is Steve, Steve Stratford, um, because he went on and was talking about it. And I called him once and, and asked him about it. And it's, it, it's not very easy to, to explain, but really what it is, is if you send your cattle to one of these yards, they will, you have to pay them and a certain amount, I think per head. And, and those are your dues. And that gets sent into the state affiliate and the state affiliate. I mean, somehow you end up as a member. I mean, they get, you get, you get counted, you know? And so that's another way how they talk about how they're the biggest, me- they've got all these members. A lot of people don't even know if they're retaining ownership. So we we can dig into that like the biggest cattlemen's organization for just a second, and I okay, and I, I'll I'll just say I don't have receipts or proof for this, but I just have notes from what I remember from talking to Don Schiffelbean last year and Brett Kinsey, and it seems like NCBA has somewhere around fourteen fifteen thousand members. Okay, but that seems like you know that's a pretty good organization. And RCAF at the time was about a third of that, like around 5,000, maybe a, a little bit less. And to me, the more I hear about guys, you know, that that do retain ownership to the feed yard and they get signed up in one of those programs that don't even know they're a member of the, you know, Nebraska Cattlemen's or Kansas Cattlemen's or in CBA, and they've sent their dues in, well, they're counted on the, you know, they're counted as a member of NCBA for their purposes. But how many of those 15,000 guys got signed up that they didn't even know they got signed up? How many of those 15,000 exercise, you know, their voting rights? Well, if you, and so I've done a lot of looking into NCBA and how they operate and how they get money. I mean, this, and that's the other thing. This is just another way of extracting money. And they are really good at that. If you look into all the ways that they pull money out of, I mean, if you go to their website right now, you'll see multiple ads for John Deere, for major corporations. And they're, they're a nonprofit. And in order to receive checkoff dollars, you have to be a nonprofit. So they're a nonprofit organization, which any organization can be a nonprofit as long as you pay yourself enough. Um, and so I guess what I was going to say is any number that they put out there, I don't trust it. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm an eternal, because I've looked into this enough. And if you go back to how I got started, a lot of people will be like, you know, oh, you're an RCAP guy or a, oh, sorry about that. Um, 
or you're a USCA guy or, or whatever, but, um, sorry, that screwed everything up on my computer. Um, anything here. Okay, good. (laughs) But when I started Lonesome Lands, I had no affiliations or really ideas about any of these organizations. Um, you know, my family is part of Iowa Cattlemen's who is an NCBA affiliate. I'm not and a member of Iowa Cattlemen specifically because they are NCBA affiliate. Um, but my brother kind of runs the cattle mostly he's in charge of the cattle. And so he is, uh, dang it. Um, I'm sorry about that. It's all right. So he is the one who's part of Iowa Cattlemen. And, um, what was I going with? Oh, so yeah, I didn't have any idea about any of these organizations and, I was contacted by our calf and then one of the USCA members contacted me and, and I told them both, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to join because I want to be able to write about this stuff and not, um, not have to worry about it. But then, like you said, right now, or things have changed a lot in the beef business and, and a lot of different things happen. And I saw that I think both our calf and USCA were doing things to help, um, the independent smaller cattlemen. And so I signed up for both of them just as a member, but that's really the only affiliation I have with them. I'm not, um, you know, I pretty much pay my dues and I'm not trying to influence anything they're doing and I'm not involved in any meetings or anything like that. And I haven't really been, I mean, I, I went to the annual meeting, I guess I go, I've, I've spoke at both of their conventions. Um, but as far as like, uh you know their their committee meetings or anything like that i'm not involved with um and so that's kind of how i've i've taken everything that i've just learned over the past five years and and that's what that's where my opinion of of ncba comes from is just what i've seen and how they operate and it's it's unbelievable really (laughs) if if i could just take every little piece of what i've seen of ncba um which maybe someday i could and and just piece it all together which i've tried to before and it's still hard to get their members to to realize because they've been in it for their whole lives and and they've heard the line of bs so many times but um yeah i mean everything they do just seems like crooked and and fudging numbers so really in you know going back to that membership number you know i i mean they can throw any number they want to out there i'm I have no idea what it would be and I'm not going to believe anything that they tell me. <laughs> so. Yeah, I was actually, uh, you know, kind of while we're on the subject, I was actually talking to some friends yesterday about, um, about analytics on social media, right? You know, I, I know you've got a good presence on YouTube. Okay. And you go to the analytics page and it tells you, you've got this many views and you know, it's, it's, you know, 84% male and they're in, you know, this age range and they're in this geographical area and they're looking for these search terms and whatever. Okay. And you take that data and you say, okay, great. And, you know, you can kind of make your content, you know, based on that, based on what works and what doesn't. Well, my host platform for this podcast has, they've given me a new measure. Okay. So, Let's just say that they're telling me that I have about 40% of my listeners over the last seven days are following on Spotify. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then you scroll down a little bit farther, over 60% of my listens are on Apple podcast and less than, and about 12% are on Spotify. So if only 12% are listening on Spotify, 
how are almost 40% following me on that platform and not somewhere else? Like that starts to not make sense now. Like, so I'm, right. I'm kind of starting to distrust some of those things. And, you know, I, yeah, I mean, that's, I, yeah, I, it's my favorite quote about statistics, which I guess you get into analytics too. Mark Twain said, let me, I, I hope I get it right. Um, facts are hard and statistics are pliable. So, um, something like that, you know, statistics can always be moved around, but the facts are what they are. Um, I thought you were going to say know, something and, like 67% of statistics all get made up on the spot. Right. He also said there's lies, there's damn lies. And then there's the st statistics, meaning it's the worst of all the lies. Um, and yeah, I, I actually try to keep statistics out of, out of what I write just because, um, I think that when I start reading an article and it's full of all these measurables that you can't really check on, um, it, it almost makes it less credible to me. Like if you can't explain your idea to a five-year-old, I think it was Einstein said that, um, then you don't really understand it yourself. So <laughs> if you need a ton and I've went into this on other YouTube videos and stuff, if you need all these different facts and figures of, I, the one that comes to mind is there was an article written talking about how important uh, important um, imports are to the beef industry. And I'm not saying they aren't important, but he had all these um, graphs and stats and all kinds of stuff to tell you that adding supply to the beef industry is good for, you know, it goes against the, the whole idea of supply and demand. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that how adding cheap the cheapest supply to the beef system helps out the average cow calf guy or the feeder the background or whatever i i don't i don't understand how that benefits the rancher and what right. it seems to and benefit is the ncba affiliated yards that get to feed those cheap cattle right yeah and then these articles come from the people that are pretty much bought and paid for um which is a lot of ag media is. Um, and so, yeah, is and, and the whole import thing. And I can see, you know, if you make your argument, like we need to add some stuff to, we, you know, we need more trimmings for, for the ground beef and stuff. Um, I mean, I can kind of see that, but when you say these imports are adding money to your, to your program, then it's kind of like, well, you're pushing a little too hard to where I'm not going to believe that. Um, you know, I mean, that beef industry needs trimmings, needs imported trimmings to keep their value up. I think they definitely understand that, but it's just another reason why they don't want um, country of origin labeling and every other, you know, it's just another reason why the the beef industry wants to continue profitability and and they don't care about the cattle industry and then they get these guys to write in these cattle magazines um pretty much the beef industry perspective and only the beef industry perspective and i i think it's you know it it's very important to note right now that there's a big difference between the cattle business and the beef business like right you know, as a cow calf producer, yeah, you can be in the beef business if you're going direct to consumer. But once you start selling in, you know, selling into the commodity system at the barn or putting them on the grid or formula, 
you know, you're taking a you're you're taking that out of the equation. You're no longer in the beef business. You're simply in the cattle business, which the way the beef business is structured, um, it's not structured to benefit the guy in the cow business. Yep. And that's one of the first things I learned when I go back to that fake meat article. It was kind of like as I what I describe myself or how I've worked through on our place is really just a hired hand. Um, I, I haven't really been involved in a lot of decision-making or that kind of stuff. Um, I pretty much show up and work because I have my own thing here with the horns. Um, and so when I wrote the thing about the fake meat, it was primarily exposing, uh, Tyson and Cargill as investors in the lab, the lab meat stuff. And then also, from that, I stumbled into the plant-based stuff that showed that there are investors there too. Um, and what you really realize is, you know, and there are, there are people in that work for the big four packers that are in the cattle business. You know, there are, even though now they call the divisions, they call them the protein division um, because they want to be able to push all this fake stuff and, and call it protein and not meat. Um but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of cattle people in that work for those companies. But the higher up you go, as far as um, the pe- the corporation and the people working at the top, the, the only thing that matters to them is the bottom line, and they're 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 beef industry people. Um, and so yeah, that was kind of surprising to me as I as the more you learn about it, the more you really realize that there is it's almost a, they're the enemy, <laughs> really. They're not even part, you know, coming in, it's kind of like, well, we have these partners in the, in the beef packing industry and it's not that at all. Just about a year ago, we had a tour on the ranch. Um, let's see, hold some of these details back. It was representatives from one of the four major packers. I'll tell you, it was not JBS. Uh, and one of the big and executives from a large fast food chain came out and visited the ranch. We had most of a morning to tour with them. And for somebody, for executives that are running one of the, one of the largest four protein companies in the world, they had an extremely limited understanding of cattle, of how long it took, you know, of how long it takes, you know, from breeding time, calving, weaning, till the time it's ready to go feeder or background or to time it goes to plant. They had an extremely, extremely limited understanding of any of that. And to be fair, when you're managing at scale, a big company like that, you're managing at scale, everything's got to be distilled down to numbers. Everything's got to be distilled down to numbers and hard data. And when you're dealing with biological animals in a natural system, it, it's really difficult to quantify that. And that's what they're, they're really having a hard time wrapping their head or heads around, you know, what we're doing here on the ranch versus, you know, okay, we're just going to go buy these 800 pounders and they go to the feedlot, we feed them corn and then we take them to the plant when they're 1600. Like, they just didn't have any understanding of it. And you know, these are the people that are in charge of our food supply. Yeah. And I feel like the more I look into things, the more you see that even in 
um, you know, those people can probably go to the feed yard, the big feed yards, and they'll understand everything because they have it all, you know, it's like you said, it's, it's all breaks down to numbers and those at the big corporate feed yards, they have everything broke down to numbers. It's a science there. Um, and so, and even though, you know, as things get bigger, that's how it go. That's how, you know, as, as operations get bigger, they, they get more broken down into numbers and they could become less about animals and more about, you know, they're more pieces of inventory. And so I'm, I would bet there's people that work at that feed yard who would, if they came out to your place would probably be just as confused about certain things because the cattle industry has been segmented down so much that you can be a, you know, you can be a yearling guy or you can be a feed yard guy. Um, and, and really not have any idea about cow cow, um, or not have a, you know, not, you'd be surprised probably at what some of them don't know about cow cow operations. Um, if that's all they've ever done. And so, and especially with you, like you're grass fed, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure there's part of your operations that I'm not that familiar with, but, um, it's something I'm kind of learning about. Yeah. Well, what do you want to learn more about? as we go so when you bring feedlot guys out that you know feedlot or dry lot and hauling all the food to the cattle and that's their only like that's their only exposure to the cattle business when you bring them out and you show them you know a couple hundred head in 50 acres like yeah we're moving these in two or three days you know and these cattle move Mm -hmm. every two or three days and you're trying to explain things like you know why it's important for me to have beaver in my creeks, why that's a good thing, why I need to spend money to get rid of um, eastern red cedar trees, invasive trees. You know, why is that important to me? And, you know, a lot of the answers are just like, well, if you just bulldoze it all flat, pave it over and put up some pens and feed bunks, that's all your problems. You wouldn't have to worry about it. Yeah. Okay. I I watched a video not long ago. I think it I think it might've been on Western horseman YouTube or something where they toured a beef, a big feedlot. And they said they got guys on like in side by sides that are called bunk readers. They come through, read the bunks every morning. And then they, from, from what's left in there or how they read it. Um, they, then they punch the numbers into the, into the feed wagon and the mills and, and figure out their mix for the day. Um, and that's it, <laughs> you know, that's it um and so and yeah you go back to that then like where my dad we had we were the farmer feeders that you hear people talk about that are are kind of going extinct and they're they're still you know a number of them around but when i was a kid you know we had a feed yard that would uh we we call them feed lots around here but um we had like 300 head it had 300 head capacity that my dad would feed out but everything that they ate was raised here so really nothing, no feed ever hit the highway ever. I mean, we had a protein supplement, I think that came in, you know, like a liquid supplement that we, that we would add, but as far as feed, um, I mean, that was it. And there was one of those about every section, um, you know, and sometimes a couple and going back to the beef packing plants, I read this book about IBP and when IBP started, it started right up here. Um, not very far from where I'm at, Denison, Iowa. And the guy said it was the first real beef packing plant that wasn't in next to a stockyards. 
um, in a major city. And um, the when he started, he said the um, my hundred I have a hundred mile radius that is my stockyards because there's a cow there's cattle in every barnyard you know on every farm there's cattle on every farm, and I think that was in the seventies might have been late sixties that he said that. Um, but then in right. 2015, you know, Tyson had bought IBP and they closed that main plant down that they started in. And the, the reason that they gave was there's just not enough cattle around in the area. Um, and so that kind of shows you how, you know, the feed yards and the farmer feeders who, you know, back then really grass fed wasn't, um, a thing <laughs> when I was a kid. Um, and so really there's all this sustainability talk now, but definitely the most sustainable way of doing it in that system that we had was, um, was what we were doing. Um, I mean, we were growing the feed on the other side of the fence of the cattle. We had a big alfalfa field and then we chopped corn that was right, right there. And so, yeah, it's, and now it all gets hauled across the country to these giant lots. But then you go and play devil's advocate. There was a lot of problems here too. <laughs> you know, you have to have shade. There was one year we had a heck of a time with heat, lost a lot of them. And, you know, then and guys are putting up these buildings and stuff, but you look at the, the yards down South and they're so dry. <laughs> That's an issue too, especially this time of year, you know, and, and right now everything's just mud everywhere here. So, you know, I, the three to five, I, I talk a lot, like I'm kind of down on feedlots a lot on the show and on my social media. And let's be fair. There's a big difference between a three to 500 head farmer feedlot. Yeah. Like you described that your family, you know, has had previously where you're growing everything that the cattle need in that feedlot, you're growing it on the farm and you're just hauling it to them, you know, just a few miles, just across the fence. And you know, from the macro picture, from the 30,000 foot level, that doesn't look any different to a big corporation from a 10,000 head feedlot where they can just buy all that crap in. They say, well, well, we're, I'll interrupt you. It does look a lot different because they'd rather, way rather deal with one 10,000 lot head than hundreds of 300, you know, when you get into it, that's why the stockyards worked well is because you take them there and that's one place where the buyers can buy the cattle. Yep. Now, and that's another, you know, you get into, well, why do the Packers, why does it seem like they're pushing everybody out and, and these formula deals are so good? Um, it's because they don't want little guys who don't have enough cattle to get a formula deal. They don't want them around. They would rather go, and it goes back, I always think about this, Stephen Kuntz, who, uh, I think I'm saying it right, he, he testified in the Senate and I watched him and it was all about efficiency and he talked about you know, how if, if anything gets added to this, if any costs get added to this supply line, when because he was talking about market regulation and how it would in, in, it would increase some costs somewhere. I don't remember exactly what it said, but that's all going to go back on the cattlemen. Um, and and to me, like the, the, that leaves a question, well, where does the efficiency stop? You know, because these gigantic packing plants that have, you know, we've closed a lot of packing plants through the years and, and every packing plant just gets bigger and bigger because that's more efficient. So, well, I mean, where does that end? There has to be, you know, and, and so now we've closed a lot of small feedlots and every, all the feedlots have gotten bigger and bigger 
and the small ones have went away. Well, where does that end? You know, and I think where it ends is, is, is just in a vertical model where one outfit owns everything, you know, I think we're heading towards that. Like, yeah, I mean, it feels like that unless enough people start asking, (laughs) where is this going to end and start doing something about it? Yeah. And you know, like the comment you just made about what Kuntz said is cattlemen, the producers at the bottom bear all the cost. And so do the consumers. It's not, it's not the middlemen that they get to bear all those costs. And I would argue that the efficiency models or that the, the efficiency model that it, it's based on cheap transportation, right? And what we've seen in the last two years is a huge spike in, spike in diesel fuel prices. I mean, it's over $5 a mile now to move a load of cattle. Like just a couple of years ago, it was just a little under four and that was high. So, you know, costs are increasing, transportation costs are increasing for not only cattle, but also finished products, also for all the feedstuffs that have to be hauled, you know, long distances because we built these mega yards in places where it was mega feedlots, 100,000 head out in Western Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma, panhandles where it is dry during the winter. And, you know, the the dryness brings on a whole other set of health problems versus, you know, extra moisture, which we can peel into later. But, you know, all the corn that's grown all around, all the water that's got to be moved, all the soy, all the alfalfa, a lot of it converges, you know, western Kansas and the Texas, Oklahoma panhandles, the big cattle feeding region. And, you know, as we're starting to see these incremental increases in, in, you know, in transportation cost that hits the whole sector. Like, yeah, especially, yeah. And then you go into a year like last year where my brother, he, I can't remember where he was, but he saw some hay trucks going across the scale in this neighborhood. Um, and we're in Western Iowa and he asked where they were going. They were going to New Mexico because there was no hay between here and New Mexico, um, last summer. Sounds about uh, right. Or last fall. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, and when you think about that, I don't know how many miles that would be, but um, when you think about that compared to. It's an expensive load of hay. Right. Yeah. Very expensive load of hay. You know, it. And then, you know, you get into that cost thing and, and it always comes back on the people raising the cattle. And then you look at the Packers, um, you know, their last year profits are. 500 billion or whatever for a quarter. I can't remember what it was, but it was insane. The other thing that nobody really sees is, you know, a lot of the packing plants, I feel they kind of run on exploited labor. You don't yeah. go, you don't go to a packing plant and, and see a bunch of, you know, educated white kids in their early twenties, cutting meat and laughing and having a good time. It's a lot of immigrants. Sometimes they're here without papers. Sometimes they are. I don't know. I do know that. I do know that there was a firm that was contracted out to a couple of these big companies that got busted using underage immigrants to go in at night, like underage children to clean meatpacking plants at night. So, yeah, 
we've got a lot of exploited, a lot of labor that's maybe being exploited and maybe being underpaid and some kind of not great living conditions. Well, what happens when everybody on that meatpacking lines minimum wage goes up by 50 cents an hour because all the social justice and ESG that everybody's going through. Oh, we got to have $25 an hour minimum wage to work at McDonald's. Okay. I hope you're ready for a $30 cheeseburger because if fast food workers want 25, the people in the meat plant, they're going to want 25 too. Yeah. You know, and, and it's that- weird growing up in, in this area. Like I married, my wife's from Sioux city and she grew up in the middle of town, but her grandpa who I've still talked to. And I like hearing his story. He worked for a month in the um, hide cellar of Swift, uh, Swift packing plant and her, no, that was her. Yeah. Her grandpa. And then her grandpa on the other side was a union rep for Algamated meat cutters. Um, and who would negotiate with IBP. And, you know, they have a lot of stories there too, but her dad tells me, he talks about it all the time when he was a kid or when he like got out of high school, which was probably, I don't know, sixties or seventies, he, uh, the beef packing plant was a good job for him. Um, and he was, he's Greek. So, you know, in the Greek community, it's, there was a lot of immigrants and they came over and worked in the packing plants. And that was thought of as a really good job. Um, and now to the idea that working at a packing plant be a good job is, is crazy for people to hear, but it, everything's changed so much since then that, um, but he also talks about how, and I think I read this in the IBP book, um, they would put billboards on this side of the border in, in Spanish that would talk about the wages, you know, what you could make at a packing plant to get people to cross the border. Um, so that's, that's kind of how the more you look into the beef, the packing industry and, and everybody talks about agriculture and our traditions and, um, you know, our handshakes, our bond and all that kind of stuff. I feel like the traditions of the beef packing industry is, is just how to be a crook and lie and cheat and steal and bribe politicians and, and all that. And the more you look into it, the more obvious it is. I mean, it's just, it was, it's an industry that has just been built on, corruption through and through book after book after book written like uh the jungle wastelands um there's like three that i'm forgetting (laughs) yeah i'm reading one right now called uh it just came out right here Uh, raw deal and it's all about hidden corruption corporate greed and the fight for the future of meat so I'm, I'm not very far into it, but it's it's pretty good. And it gets into a lot of the recent stuff. And um, the introduction had a lot of stuff about uh, working conditions during COVID and how people died and and the mess that that was and, and how they tried to cover that up and, and force people to keep coming in and all that. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah, there's a new one for you. <laughs> but I think they referenced the jungle, too. I'm, I mean, it's uh yeah it's but you know and even going back to this ibp book i wrote it was written it's called like and it was hard to find um but it was called the legend of ibp and it was written by a guy who probably had access because he kind of you know sugar-coated everything you know he talked about one of the founders was found guilty of bribing 
in, in this deal with the the New York Mafia. They had actually had to. So IBP came out with box beef, and the, right. and the meat cutters, the butchers were all unionized and against it. They didn't want it coming into New York. Well, IBB worked out a deal with a mafia guy um, to get the union to allow box beef into New York. And the one of the founders of IBP ended up, I think, I don't know if he got, if he pleaded guilty or he was found guilty of bribery somehow in that whole deal. Um, but the guy was kind of like, well, he didn't really bribe, you know, in the book, it was like, well, he didn't ever serve time and all this kind of stuff. But it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, he was involved with the mafia and he got convicted of bribery. Um, it's pretty obvious. But the weird thing about that is the mafia guy that was also convicted of bribery, IBP tried to bring him in as like a COO or something a few years later. And everyone freaked out because it's like, hey, this is a New York mafia guy that you're bringing in as the leader in the and they brought him in just like nothing oh yeah here's our new here's our new uh you know corporate head of whatever and uh it, but yeah it came out in the media what a scumbag he was and they got rid of him pretty quick but it, you know it's just story after story like that and, and and generation after generation you know you go back into into the early 1900s like you said with the jungle and how how bad things were back then um and it goes all the way up into now where this this book's coming out and, and a lot of their focus, I think, from what I've the first part I read there was um the working conditions during COVID. The thought just occurred to me, like some of these things that we talk about, you know, in the meat industry and what's happened with some of these companies. If you went to the movie theater and that was like a scene in a movie, you'd go, Oh, there's no way that would happen. Yeah. I mean, reading but about it. But yeah, when it's this... real life, it's like, yeah. oh, yeah, I could totally believe that. <laughs> well, it's funny reading the book because it's like, you know, one chapter is the guy is, you know, he's involved with the New York Mafia and he's convicted of bribery. And then the next chapter is, well, we tried to bring him in as a COO or whatever. And, and it's just one thing right after the other. And it's, well, that didn't really work. But and it, it makes you wonder, too, how involved they were with the Mafia if you had to bring that guy in. As, as some sort of leadership in the whole work organization, but. I, I'm I just know. seeing this big revolving door in my head of, you know, like lawmakers and military generals becoming, you know, working in the defense industry and, you know, people that work at the FDA, when they retire, they get, you know, they get a hefty position at Pfizer or whatever. Well, we haven't even talked about Pfizer. JBS yet. I mean, went down that. I mean, how many people? You talk about people not knowing anything. How many people do you know know that the biggest meatpacker in the world, their owners went to prison for six months? I that was like five years ago. Yeah, they got fined three billion dollars. Like nobody knows that. Uh, wasn't? I it? mean, very few people know, really know the details of what that is. I mean, you talk about making a movie. That would be a great one. What went on in Brazil in the two thousand, you know, two thousand fifteen to two thousand twenty? is you wouldn't believe it i mean it would be it's crazy to, to read about look i've talked enough crap on jbs if they're going to put a hit out on me they would have already done it by now <laughs> people have said that well you better be careful talking about them <laughs> well, you know there's a lot of people that they probably are more mad at than some dumb farmer <laughs> well so it, and that that that's something i've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks is you know the jbs thing the batista brothers getting you know, getting caught with the bribery charges in Brazil and having to 
go to jail and pay huge fines. And the bribery charges were, you know, there were some of those bribery charges that were related to them getting access to the U.S. market and exporting and exporting to the U.S. Well, they they bought Swift Foods with um, illegally obtained money, really. Okay. And that was the number three packer in the U.S. at the time. So then we have the USDA secretary, Tom Vilsack. He comes out and he says these things. Like, you know, he, he kind of basically admits that, you know, they, they've hit JBS with huge criminal fines, that they've got these problems going on using using freaking children to clean their packing plants at night. And then he turns around and says, we can't do anything to them because they're too big to fail. And we're going to turn around and give them $600 million worth of contracts to feed the military. Like I'm, I'm sorry. If, if y'all saw that and let that go by without questioning it, you are part of the problem. Yeah. And I mean, the ag media is it's insane but also how much of an investigation really went on in the u.s i saw him and, and this keeps popping into my head because vilsack from the time he um got in there and a lot of this comes from another book called the meat racket have you read that yes sir yeah. and, and so the, and they talk about how he pushed this gypsy stuff and uh, which is grain inspection packing stockyards act um they wanted to implement all these new rules that would that would kind of you know, regulate the the expansion of these Packers. And, you know, they pushed it all until right at the end where they almost had it done. And then they gave up on it. Um, and it's kind of like everything you've seen in the last, you know, we were going to get to 5014 bill. We were going to get this, we were going to get that. And then all of a sudden it just goes away. Vilsack has been ag secretary. So he's eight years under Obama. And what are we now into the third? third? Oh, yeah. The third year. So you're at, 11 years of the past um, 15, you know, there's four years in there that he wasn't. So he has been, you know, your ag secretary for 11 years. And he's talked about, um, you know, this, the main problem is it is corporate ag, their expansion, all this. I saw Tyson foods just bought some sausage company just last week. You know, they're buying companies constantly. And I think all that stuff has to go through the USDA and be approved. And it just continually gets approved. Like he doesn't do anything. And then you go back and look at what happened in Brazil. You know, who they were bribing were government government officials. Has anyone, I mean, <laughs> at some point, do we put two and two together and be like, is JBS just paying the USDA to let them do whatever they want? I mean, I saw an interview of Vilsack this weekend and they a uh, guy asked him about atypical BSC was found in Brazil last week. And he said he was unfamiliar with it. Like he had never even heard that it had happened. Like, are, are you unfamiliar with atypical BSE? No, because he BSE said, or just that it happened. I think the question was, uh, do you, what do you, you know, what do you have to say about BSE found? And he goes, well, there's different forms of BSE. I'm just not real familiar with what, I mean, you could tell he didn't really know. And I don't know if he didn't know or if he was saying he didn't know because he didn't want to bring attention to it or what. It was a weird video for him to, because it looked like he was caught off guard that that even existed. Um, you've been around long enough to remember the cow that killed Christmas. The cow that killed Christmas. The, oh, the BSE deal. The yeah. BSE deal yeah. in 2014, the cow that killed Christmas. Right. That was one. Yeah. 
that was one cow and that killed the beef market like yeah i'm i'm sure that you know the pundits and you know randy over at cattle facts will say oh there were other factors in that that wasn't it whatever yeah tell that to the guys at the had their cattle at the barn that day i've heard those stories you They're get sitting there they'd hauled their cattle that morning and then that came out and people just quit bidding yeah i mean they couldn't get a bid and then you've got you know and now this is the second time in the last 12 months that we've had bse in brazil in their export chain and for the second time in in 12 months china has said no more brazil until you get your bse figured out the first time our USDA basically said nothing, didn't even acknowledge, didn't even acknowledge it. The BSC case in Brazil barely made news here. And now it's happening again. China immediately stops imports from Brazil. What do we do? Look the other way. Well, the other thing they're going to do is say that everyone now needs these electronic tags because... I mean, that's what they've said about foot and mouth disease. Apparently, this was a big topic on the at NCBA convention because they're trying to push these electronic ID tags on everybody. Um, but everybody knows where this foot and mouth disease is going to come from. <laughs> you know, like if we are really concerned about foot and mouth disease or BSE or any sort of outbreak, we all know where it's going to come from. It's come from the country that we're importing meat from who continuously has these outbreaks. And, you know, and you talk about that case back in 14 and I'm, I mean, I don't remember it real well, but, um, you know, I've heard the stories and stuff, but I'm pretty, didn't they track that real quick? Yeah. And it was from Canada. Like they knew that within a few days, I think at least. And I think that if that happened here now, and this goes back to who needs to, you know, where, who, who wants to take on the cost of this? But, um, you know, I, I would think now if, if an outbreak, if something like that happened, it would get tracked really quick. I mean, sale barns have, you know, all their records in order. All these feed yards keep such good track of where these cattle come because they want to know how efficient they are and where they, you know, if they have some that aren't efficient, they don't want to go back there. So they all know where the cattle are from and, and they keep really good track of them. Um, and so I would think, I bet you they could track any disease outbreak i mean yeah there's the random yeah pretty obscure thing places that that you might not be able to but for the most part and and if we wanted if that's your real um concern then why not just increase um you know the transparency of 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 the movement of cattle instead of forcing everyone that has calves to buy these tags and and have them tagged i mean this is going to be such a nightmare for the sale barns too because they're gonna if they come off they're gonna come off in trucks and you know and then there you're gonna have put them in head gates at the sale barn and it'd just be a mess put them in put them in yeah and and re-tag them at the sale barn with the correct uh what's it called premise id yeah i don't i've just started trying to I'm, i'm gonna try and do a video at some point but it's it's ridiculous that you know, the USDA doesn't have to answer for anything, but everybody that raised cattle is going to have to, you know, add an extra cost and, and make sure we have everything, all our ducks in a row and USDA guy 
you know, Vilsax up there and says he has no, he doesn't even know that, that BSC, they found BSC in Brazil. So that, that's him not knowing that there was BSC in Brazil is all, it, it smells like criminal negligence to me, but I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> well, it, and uh, then that goes back to the JBS deal. Like, I mean, I don't know. And, you know, there was a big guy. This was before their whole criminal thing, I think, that worked at USDA that went to work for uh, JBS, one of the main heads at the USDA meat inspection, I think. Um, he ended up taking a job with JBS. Oh, that can't be right. That would, that, that sounds illegal. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, and then you go back, you know, I follow all this stuff and people call me crazy we talk about Stephen Coons and a lot of people don't know well he works at Colorado State Colorado State um their main you know their big ag school and their main research facility is called Five Rivers Research Facility Five Rivers is the biggest um feed yard in the country they feed out over a million head and they were not too many years ago owned by JBS so they still probably have a lot of JBS people and you know, they're doing, I mean, they're a big Colorado outfit. So, and that's where JBS headquartered um, and their big plants out there. So, I mean, it, it all kind of, it's really easy to run this stuff together and, and find out who's pushing the, who's pushing what. Um, but a lot of people don't, I don't think realize that, you know, you know, everybody thinks that Stephen Coons is, you know, his word is, is the gospel, but you know, there's, there's a lot of money behind him too. And, and the university he works for, and it's, it's five rivers and GB, JBS out of Colorado. I'm not saying that he, they're paying him off or whatever, but when you're, when he's putting research together, who do you think he's going to, to, to put his numbers together? And if we're talking yes. to about, yeah, who's gonna, who's gonna carry the load on if there's a little bit more, cost involved in in the market and if know? jbs is putting up 75 or 80 percent of the budget of the five rivers center for you know animal welfare excellence or whatever the hell it is as they call it and he writes something that's critical of jbs that makes their stock price fall guess what well, that doesn't happen <laughs> yeah they'll pull his funding and then he's out of a job so it's like you know putting people these big companies have a habit of putting people in a position where they can't tell the truth. Yeah. I, I want to, I have a, I have a fan that wrote in that we've been in contact a little bit. Um, and it, I'll just, his, his first name is Craig. So Craig, if you're out there, yeah, this is you buddy. Um, but Craig has been emailing me back and forth for a few months, just talking about like, you know, small scale farming and homesteading and, you know, and processing and he's also a student at CSU. And he says that the influence that JBS has on that program is pretty gross and disgusting. And like, I'm going off memory here. And I believe he said that he was going to quit that program because just because of the influence that JBS has on it and they're yeah. not looking at anything regenerative, they're just, it's all, it's all feedlot. Um, but I wanted to circle back to, you know, the conversation we were having just a few minutes ago about you know NCBA pushing electronic identification tags and transparency and traceability, and this is a huge two-edged sword, right? I I like traceability, I like transparency, 
I have EID tags on my calves because I can tie a weight record at the scale to their digital record and I don't have to write shit down. It's all in a computer. I don't have to worry about, you know, getting things crossed up. You know, this animal, this weighed what? I got it all, right? I put it down, you know, you know, the calving groups are born this day to this date range. So I know how old everything is. I get weights on them and it can, it helps me with my records. Do I want to give anybody else my EID tag numbers? No. Like right. until I sell them, when I sell them, fine, you can have those numbers, but my data is my data and you can't have it. My right. data doesn't go with that animal unless I want to sell it to you or let you have it. And the issue that I have, okay, traceability. We want to be able to trace back every piece of meat to the pasture that it calved in. Great. I support that. I 100% support that. But if we're going to have that traceability all the way through the system, there has to be a lot of transparency also in the system. Okay, what did the calving pasture look like? Where did that animal go when it was a yearling to grow? What, what feedlot did it go to or what pasture did it go to to finish in? Who processed it? Who's touched it since it's been processed? You want traceability and transparency? That's what it looks like. Right. What it looks it like is a QR code on the package of hamburger that you can scan with your phone and look at everywhere that animal was, every injection that it got, when it was weaned, when it was born, and every time it was moved. Most importantly, every injection that it got, okay? And I think that that's really important. Like, that's the biggest thing about transparency that I want is let's have medical history tied to that EID record in CBA. If that's what you want, let's tie medical history to it. So every time you put a needle in that animal's neck, you need to generate a record tied to it. And I could, maybe some people are getting upset. Fine. There's a big deal coming with antibiotics use in livestock. You know, USDA... They're trying to change the rules on, they're trying to change the rules and, you know, strengthen, strengthen the prescription laws for antibiotics. And this is a can of worms. You know, we, we talked about smaller three to 500 head feedlots or under a thousand head feedlots. Okay. Where they're cattle that you've raised on the farm, you're feeding them with farm products. And when they're fat, you take them to the barn, you sell them as a fat, then they go right to the processing plant. Ideally, that's the way things should work. What kind of health problems are you going to have in that system? Your health problems are going to be very minimal because you've had your cows for a while. They've been on your ranch. They've been eating your grass. They've been eating your corn. They've been eating your alfalfa. They've got, you know, like, uh, what do I say? Like resistance or, you know, their bodies are used to the pathogens that are in that area, right? The problem is, is when we start gathering up all these calves, from different places, lumping them together, moving them a thousand miles and dumping them in an environment that they've never been in. And look, okay. Southwest Kansas, Texas, Oklahoma panhandles where it's dry and they feed cows. They do it there because it's dry because it's easier to deal with the health problems from dust than it is to deal with the health problems from mud. Right. Now, and he, you can agree or disagree. It's my understanding that when cattle hit a feedlot, they're classified as either high risk or low risk. There's no such thing as a no risk animal. And in almost every feedlot, high risk animals will get a really powerful antibiotic off the truck like Draxon. 
low-risk animals will get a lower power antibiotic, something like Batril or, you know, Bactril, what I I get all these names confused. Um, But generally, almost everything coming off the truck gets an antibiotic as a prophylactic, but they don't call it a prophylactic. And I get it. You have 10,000, you have 100,000 head of cattle mashed in to less than a square mile, you know, sometimes just a couple hundred acres that they're mashed into. That's a very pathogen-friendly environment. And okay, I get it. You want to nuke everything coming in. You want to get rid of every single pathogen coming into the yard and try to make a sterile, sterile system that there's no bugs in, so nothing gets sick. Well, newsflash, there's this thing called wind. <laughs> there's this thing called air. Like you can't, some of those things can blow in from miles away. Uh, that I think if we'd get rid of some of the concentration, some of these problems we'd have would solve themselves is, is kind of where I'm getting at. You know, I'm not against antibiotics by any stretch of imagination. If an animal is sick, give them antibiotics, make them feel better. For me personally, in my program, that animal is is out of my program at that point. Like, I'll take it to the barn, I'll sell it to a friend, but I am never going to sell that animal as hormone free, right. or I'm sorry, as antibiotic free. Yeah, you know, even if it's even if it's a year past the withdrawal date, I'm not going to call that animal antibiotic free because I gave it antibiotics. You know, I, that that's a that's my thing. That's me. Whether or not anybody else agrees with it, I don't care. That's on it. That's just how I feel. Yeah. And that goes back to, I mean, you're selling your beef. So it goes back to your consumer and what works for you. Um, And you sound, I don't, you know, I'm not going to comment on the process as far as going into big feed yards because I'm not, it sounds like you're a lot more familiar with that than I am. And I'm sure, you know, some of them probably aren't as, as open to talk about it as they, you know, or they're not excited to talk about it, but yeah, but you go back to that QR code and I was told that there was a gross, there was a guy, I was told not very long ago, there was a guy that worked at a grocery store and he could scan beef and tell you right where it came from as far as country of origins. Um, That goes back to the country of origin label. But the other thing about that is as far as traceability goes, yeah, like your QR thing, that goes on the packer and to me that makes more sense as far as traceability back from the meat instead of now that they're trying to start it at the calves instead of instead of start it at the packer um and so well of course because they want the cow calf producer to bear that cost and then you go back i mean this leads into the country of origin we're so worried about foot and mouth disease and and bse and everything like that but we can't put uh we can't differentiate country of origins on on beef packages or or tell consumers where it's coming from you know if we're worried about that let's let's do that <laughs> but we've been told for years and years that we can't do that so yeah well at least they're not talking about a system like they have uh, in the UK are you familiar with that at all like mm-hmm. so their idea of transparency and traceability is when a calf is born, I think it has, uh, I think what Alex told me is 48 hours. They have 48 hours to get a tag in that calf's ear and the number 
and that number has to be reported to the government. Yeah, and that's birth an date, issue too. Birth date, location, and the number. Yeah. And every time that the, every time that animal moves off that farm, like every time it, you know, if you sell it, every time it, I think every time it gets on a truck and leaves your care, that has to be reported to the government. Yeah. And that goes back to your EID. I think, you know, it does make sense. These RFID tags, and especially for somebody, I talked to somebody who retains ownership and I was like, do you use them tags? And he said he didn't, but, and he said the EID tags fall out a lot more. It's a lot more common than like your regular tags. Have you had that issue? Um, like I use all flex. Okay. Like an yeah, all flex sure 842 piece, um, you know, tag and a button. Mm-hmm. I don't you think I've lost any since I started putting them in uh, over two years ago. Yeah. You know, feedlot Z tags, they fall out all the time. Right. You know, and look, you know, guys will be like, well, it's though those EID tags are expensive. Okay. Look, you're paying a dollar and a half for a Z tag. You know, two piece tags are like two fifty. You're paying four and a quarter for an EID tag. If you can't afford another $2 a head, and you don't see the value that that can bring to your operation in the data you can get back just from the weight records. Right. No. Okay. I mean, there's people who keep really good records and it's all with a pen and paper, you know, um, and they've just done it that way for years. And, and I think they should be able to do it. I, I just feel like we're getting into this point too. Yeah. I mean, the EID tags make sense if you want to use them, but to have a mandatory and to have the government be able to control and have access to that number is ridiculous. Um, you know, and then you get into the, uh, you know, it comes back to this central banking, digital currency. I don't know if you've oh, yeah. looked into all that. It's kind of like, why does the government need to know everything that's going on? Um, with you know the i feel like past generations would this would be laughed at but now it's kind of like oh yeah we're going to inventory your entire cow herd and we're going to send that into the government like i don't know it's just the whole thing just seems weird and um well, i don't, I don't want, want the government like to know how many cows i have uh they can count them by satellite if they really wanted to yeah don't right. care. <laughs> yeah. send the drone out right um, yeah it, until we're talking like herds in the tens of thousands, like the government is not going to care. I mean, my little operation with a couple hundred, like I'm not even a blip on anybody's radar. They're not even going to ever look at me or worry what I've got. Well, right. you forget to pay your taxes. I bet you'll be a blip on their radar. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a good point. I mean, that's how it goes. You know, if you, it, you know, there's, there's hardened criminals that are let out jail every day and i heard somebody's going to jail for i can't remember what it was but some tax evasion deal and the sentence was unbelievable you know if, if you don't tell them what you what you're supposed to tell them they're gonna they make you pay for it <laughs> but it's time to send in your taxes but we're not going to tell you how much it is and if you screw up in this complicated 53 pages of math we're going to arrest you and throw you in a box yeah i've heard you want to go back to the checkoff. I've heard there's guys who didn't pay the checkoff or there was a sale barn once. I can't remember. I wish I knew the details more on this and it's something I should look into. There was a sale barn that started an escrow account. Instead of sending the checkoff, they put it in this account. 
and they got fined millions and millions of dollars. I think it bankrupted them um, because it is a law. You know, the checkoff is a, it's the beef act. Um, so it is a law that you have to pay your dollar ahead every time. So, but then you get into that and it's like, well, and I've talked to guys that sell direct to the yard, you know, they're, uh, I talked to a yearling guy the other day, he sells direct to a yard and he says, yep, that, that, that order buyer, um, he makes sure he collects that dollar head and gets that turned in. But you wonder also, I mean, how many direct sales are going on and, you know, it's not like a sale barn where they, they're, you know, packers and stockyards are looking over your books. Um, as far as these direct sales, you know, I'm sure there's, there's plenty that aren't getting collected, but. Like if I drive in with a trailer into your yard and buy five head of cows from you and take them home, I think by law, I'm supposed to send five bucks. Yeah. In. And that's, you know, now Nobody that we have that. all these, all these processing, like, where's that going? Um, smaller processing and, and a lot of people are selling beef direct. Now I'm sure they're not paying a check off. They're not pulling the check off deal out of that. Um, I, I, I suppose if it's born on my ranch and I'm the one that takes it to the plant and I'm the one selling the meat, but where, where would that check off dollar be generated? Yeah, I suppose once you get it, once you get every pound of beef sold, that's your, that's your beef sold. And <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, I suppose since technically, you know, I feel like we shouldn't be talking about this because they're going to come for you. <laughs> they're, now they're going to start cracking down if they hear about it. I'll bring it on. Um, I mean, yeah, I'd love to write about that. <laughs> I suppose that, you know, since my cow calf business is a separate business unit, at least on paper from my beef business, probably when the beef business buys, buys that animal is probably when that checkoff dollars should be theoretically generated and billed and, and sent in. Yep. The cattle business should, should uh, pay that. Yeah. I'm not going to do that. what they would tell you. I'm not going to do that. No. Like if, if they're going to, if they're going to expend the resources to come after me doing a less than a hundred head a year on, on the checkoff dollars, bring it. Let's fight that fight. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to. You let me know when that happens too. I'd like to hear about it. Uh, man. So we've been, I've got a note here, um, about what sets the pricing on the grid and formula. So we can tie that all back. You know, we've got our four big meat packers and, you know, JBS has a very, very cozy relationship with Five Rivers Feeding. Very cozy. Yeah, I mean, they're practically it, the same company. <laughs> and so I'm not, I'm not sure how to tackle it, but I guess what I'm saying is, like, I've always wondered for a long time what sets the pricing on grid formula. Okay, well, it's the fat cattle cash trade. Okay, well... If the grid and formula are for all the high quality cattle, okay, we're going to put everything we think is high quality. We're going to go to grid or formula with it. Great. That keeps the lower cattle mark, you know, that, that helps keep high quality cattle in the market. Well, what are we bidding on in the cash market to set the basis price for that week's grid and formula pricing? That's always the question that I have. 
Like what sets that weekly price? How is that determined? Well, if everything good is on grid and formula, uh, what would Steve call them? Coon shit cattle. So then the buyers go low ball on a pin of coon shit cattle on Monday morning. Yeah. That have been in the feedlot for too long that the owner's probably losing money on. And they're happy to get rid of them for whatever price is offered that day. And then that sets a low grid formula for everybody else for the rest of the week. And all the buyers laugh. The feedlot guys say, whew, we lived another week. And the guy at home that gets that grid formula check says, oh, well, at least I did a little better than I would have done at the barn. Can yeah. you can you unpack any of that? Well, I'm probably not the best guy to unpack that. But, you know, and I've started listening more to um, Corbett Wall, um, his, his morning deal. And he talks, he, you know, he'll talk about, well, these guys that aren't big enough to have formula deals. Um, and they'll still get negotiated bids, which means I still have Packers calling them and bidding. Um, and so there are still good cattle out there that are getting bid on, um, I believe. You know, and, and once we get into these numbers like we're getting to now, you know, the dollar sixties, um, I feel like, you know, they're not paying that for just anything. Um, they have to have cattle and they have to be have meat on the bones um but yeah like i said i'm probably not the best guy to get into the whole market stuff that's not something i've i've really researched enough to understand you know that'd be more for corbett wall or steve stratford or or, or no order buyer like that i'll have to get um steve and i have been talking it, it's hard to get our schedules to line up <laughs> yeah he's a busy guy with these got a pro bull rider son although he's laid up i guess now but yeah are you in that area are you are you down by pratt yeah i'm like uh i'm 35 miles south of pratt oh okay okay yeah so i've known steve for i don't know over 20 years oh really yeah okay yeah and there's uh i thought you meant you had just got to know him through this deal but yeah you've known him a long time i don't know yeah we've met um and in fact one of one of my really good friends and partners that we've been doing business with for uh 14 years now um he's been a stratford customer for over 20 years so he knows steve from way back when and i guess i kind of know steve you know more through more through that side than anything else but yeah steve's a good guy and you know we're in the same trailer hood we have the same problems yeah how long have so how long have you been doing grass fed um I'm actually, honestly, I'm just kind of getting started. So okay. I bought these. That's cows. what I'm saying. You're in the middle of feedlot country. Um, and so, yeah, I was curious if, it, yeah. But you've been raising cattle before? I've, been, I've done custom grazing for other people uh, since 2008. Okay. So this is this is like my third drought. <laughs> third drought oh, yeah. going through. So it's kind of like. <laughs> No, guys, it's dry. Time to destock two years ago and then riding through this drought and getting now and everybody's panicking about $300 alfalfa and $150 a ton hay. And I'm just kind of like stockpile grass because I saw it coming. Um, But your your question is like, how long have I been doing grass fed? Uh, Let's just say less than a year because I bought these cows right after COVID hit. Okay, you buy sale barn corrientes, you 
you know, I don't need to tell you what that's like. I probably don't need to tell any of the other listeners what that was like. Cause it was, it's an education, you know, <laughs> like anything else you want to start doing, you're going to get an education one way or the other. Okay. I got my education. Fair enough. We'll, we'll just kind of leave it at that. So, and ever, ever since before I bought the cows, I knew that it was going to be a long process to put my product in front of people. I didn't want to, I'm not the guy that's just going to go buy cows, graze them on the ranch for three months and then sell them to you and call them grass fed. I mean, if I'm going to sell you a calf that I raised, I raised that, I made the breeding decision on that calf and I raised that calf on native range from the day it was born till the day it went to the processor. And then I'm going to hand it to you in a box. And when I hand it to you in a box and shake your hand and say, this had no antibiotics, had no hormones, it had no grain, raised on 100% native pasture, little alfalfa supplement, little protein supplement. Here's label from that if you want to see it. Other than that, it is what it is. You know, I want to be honest and transparent about what I have and what I'm selling to my customers, to my family, and to my friends, right? And I think, and I, and I get that doesn't fit everybody's, everybody's business. Not everybody can, you'll invest basically two years in a project like this before it starts, you know, turning over, before it starts turning over and making income. I get that. I'm fortunate enough that I have, um, less than 20% of my grass is taken up by my cows. The rest of it, I'm still bringing in a lot of custom cattle, a lot of other people's cattle that I take care of through the year. That's what I'm still living on. That's my cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. This is the year that I'm finally like this year. I've got a bunch of cows that I'm going to cull. It's a big, it's a big culling year of the older cows. And past this point, like when I started into getting processing next year, I'll be down to just a few of my older cows and probably not many of them are going to be going, going to the processor, but starting next year, everything that I'm going to have is is going to be ranch raised yeah yeah the the grass-fed thing's interesting to me and you know i said i grew up at a feedlot but that doesn't mean i'm all in on the feeding and it, it's kind of like the more you look at it the more i've thought about it and look at it you have on one hand you've got these giant feed yards and now we're starting to get a lot of buildings involved and on the other hand you have grass-fed you know 100 percent grass-fed and, and out on open country all their lives so if there was one way i want things to go it would be more towards the grass fed way um you know for sure because i and that's another thing like you know where does all this concentration stop and up here now we've got a guy building a packing plant which it's good that these new packing plants are getting built but he he sells cattle buildings you know, and looking at his ads, it looks like they're 100% confinement. Like they, they're called confinement, but cattle buildings. And that, uh, I don't like that idea. <laughs> That's kind of a, it, the more, when you look at the chickens in the hog industry, going back to that meat racket book, the more they could control and confine everything and turn it into numbers where it's not an animal. Um, that's where the, where they, it, that's when it became completely vertical, um, as far as the dollars and, and how much the packer controlled. 
and now we're getting into these packing plants um and the one in north platte uh i saw you know trey wasserberger he put on a really good presentation and what he's doing there is really impressive but he also has a podcast and he had a guy on um that's making it i think he's making an investment in the packing plant or, or they're partnering up somehow and they're capturing the methane off of these cattle um to convert it to energy somehow um but it all comes from a confinement building and i don't know if they're 100 percent confined or how it all works but i just hate the idea of of confinement buildings for cattle and i get it you know up in south dakota and, and in this part of the country you know, buildings are, it's, it's almost needed. You need shade almost, you know, if you're going to have cattle on a lot, but where's the line drawn on that deal? You know, because the, the hog guys never drew a line and now they got hogs 100% confined 100% of their life, you know, <laughs> I mean, and there's people around here, there's guys running, trying to push these hoop buildings and, and this certain way to breed your cattle to where they would exist good in these hoop buildings and they would calve in the hoop building and, and they would just live in a hoop building and you come in and clean it out every day. And I mean, I don't really know how it worked, but um, they were trying to push these buildings. And so, yeah, I think it's something that, that the industry itself needs to look at. And I know it's something they probably don't want to, but I mean, where is, where is how much confinement's too confi too much confinement you know how many you know if you're gonna say that these confinement buildings are okay well how many months or is it okay for them to live in there um you know i don't it, it's these are just kind of philo philosophical questions that that are bounced around with me and what really got me is trey on his podcast um he was talking to this guy who runs this company. It's like Enviro Bion or something like that. And I listened to it not very long ago. So it's fresh in my mind. And the guy said, um, the hogs and chickens have turned into an indoor sport and it's time for the cattle to get there too. And him saying that just, I was just like, I, mean, I don't like that idea um, at all. Uh, but I'd like, I, you know, I don't, don't want to talk too bad about it because I don't, I feel like I'm not familiar enough with it um but it's just it's just kind of brings up a lot of questions i think and it, those are questions i think that the industry should be looking at but it, it's a lot easier to ignore um because once consumers you know found out about that hog deal it uh you know the hog people had a lot of problems and they had to change how they were doing it um as far as the crates and that they were living in and and different stuff like that well you know, let, let's taking a step back okay what i see what I, I i'm hearing you talk about you know these new barns and people want to put cattle in barns which you know of course is nothing new it sounds like a prison like you yeah, know I mean, hog that's... barn sounds like a prison chicken barns they kind of i mean they kind of look like prisons when you yeah, they, yeah i mean that's the other thing too it's and and in the cattle industry you know we're so against PETA and and all these animal rights nuts but at one you know if we do you know care about our cattle at what point you know you, everybody's afraid of sounding like an animal rights nut but at what point you know do we start saying okay this is too much Okay, you know, and the hog guys never said that. I mean, some of them did. Actually, there's a guy who's who's neighbors with my family that has sold to Neiman 
Neiman Ranch forever. Uh, I mean, since they got started, and he's never put his cat, hogs in a, in a big building like that. He's all, he's all for my whole lifetime. They've been out on huts, um, so there are some. But as far as the industry is concerned, the whole industry kind of went to this confinement barn deal. You brought up something important. You you, you brought up PETA, and you know, I, I'll say this: when I <laughs> when I was in the Navy, every once in a while. Um, and I was stationed on the East Coast. Every once in a while, we'd have to go down and work on a ship at Norfolk Naval Shipyards. And to get from where I worked on shore duty to get down to the shipyards, we drove right by PETA headquarters. Like there was, there was one time, at, I think about three weeks straight, every day we had to go down there and drive past PETA headquarters. And oh, the, the nasty things I thought about doing in that place. And what's really strange is almost Every day we would drive by there, I would always slow down and tell my guys, like, look at the people walking in there, look at their shoes and look at what they got in their hands. They're carrying a leather briefcase and wearing leather shoes walking into that PETA building. They're an idiot. <laughs> um, but, but to kind of play into that, okay, just I want to preface this with I don't agree with any really any part of PETA's platform you know, on the macro level. But when you start looking at a chicken barn or a hog house or a feedlot, they have a point. Right. And that's, they have I'll a to help point. you. Yeah. So PETA, when I was in college, I did this presentation and they were at, there was one uh, campaign they had that compared chicken barns to concentration camps in the Holocaust. <laughs> so it's like, we can say chicken barns are bad, but then you can go completely insane and and compare them to a concentration camp in the Holocaust. Like, we don't think chickens are humans, um, but maybe maybe they shouldn't be treated quite the way uh, the way they're be treated. But they should be treated like an intelligent living being. Yeah, like an animal. You know, like an animal. But Peter then keeps going to where they should be treated like humans. <laughs> there's and, and, a, there's a middle ground in there. So it, I agree. And the thought that kind of occurred to me is I'd like to bring somebody from PETA out to the ranch. Like I'll put it out there right now on my little podcast, open invitation, anybody from PETA, small group, come out to the ranch, come with an open mind. And I'll be happy to show you how I produce cattle and how I care for the land and what it looks like in a natural system. And then we can jump in the truck and we can go to Dodge City and we can look at a feedlot and we can talk about the beef production cycle. I think a lot of these people, you know, these activists, like these PETA activists that, you know, they're against hog barns and chicken barns. You know, they see something horrific like happened uh, a couple of years ago at the start of COVID when they had to, what, what was the politically correct term they used? They had to euthanize many, many barns of hogs and some of the ways they did that were inhumane and horrific. I mean, just, just straight up turn the ventilation off in a, in a, in a barn with 20,000 hogs in it, oh, turn the ventilation know. off and let yeah, them over. I never, never heard that. Uh, or we'll pump in CO2 to try to asphyxiate all of them. Like horrible, horrible, just things that nobody would be a part of. No rancher would want to be a part of that that kind of system can only exist 
where it's managed from the top down, the person caring for those animals has no connection to them. Like I have a connection to my cows. The one, the ones that are in my freezer, I know their names. I know what they look like. And I have no problem with that. But they, they have no, they have no emotional stake with those animals. They don't relate that the, these animals provide for them, provide for their food to them. It's just a job. I'm just here to read these numbers off the wall and write them on this clipboard every day and make sure the systems are working and nothing's dead. Like it, it's not the same as going out and going out to the pasture every day and making sure everything's walking right, making sure all your eyes look good, you know, looking at udders, looking at tails. It's not the same. And to take part in something like that, where you're going to destroy 20,000 pigs or 20,000 chickens or however many it was in one of those barns. Like that's, that's pretty wasteful. And it's, it's almost shameful that we've allowed that to happen. And the more we keep doing things like that, that's the more ammunition we give organizations like PETA. You know, the more time that, that we kill 10,000 head in a feedlot in Western Kansas because it got too hot overnight. Uh, there, there, there's a little more to that story, which, you know, we, we could dig back into, but that doesn't make any of us in the cattle business look good. Yeah. I mean, it just brings up questions that I don't have the answer to, but, um, yeah, but I think it's, those are questions that need to be asked and they're not really being asked. Um, as far as, and not just the feedlot stuff, but the building thing, um, that's the main question I have. Cause I don't really have a, you know, I think there's a lot of really good people and a lot of really good cattlemen that work at feed yards. Um, even the corporate feed yards. Um, but you know, you get into that hog deal and go back to the packing plant labor. I think it's very, the hog, a lot of these hog buildings are, have the same kind of labor. Um, you know, they're immigrants that just really are kind of desperate for money. And, you know, there's a guy, I talked to a guy who rents out a house to some immigrants that work at a pig farm and the house is pretty much in, like, it smells so bad in there because, you know, just those the smell of hogs inside of those buildings gets into the people that work in there. It gets into their skin and they cannot get it out. Um, I can remember as a kid, there was going to church and there was a hog farmer there. And we sat, we, you know, if you sat by a hog farmer, you'd, you'd know it. They'd get all cleaned up, but there's no getting that stink out of you. I worked for a neighboring farmer in high school through the mid nineties. And the first couple of years I worked there, like the first year I worked there was maybe like the last decent year in the independent hog market. The second summer I worked there, which would have been summer 94, five, like 95, whatever. That was the year that the bottom fell out of the hog market. And the next year they didn't have hogs. Yeah. I think it was 98 is when the bottom really fell out. So this would have been a little bit, this would have been a year or two before that. Yeah. I mean, it it was kind of a gradual decrease. We got rid of our hogs around the same time. My grandpa had a small barn. I can't remember how many we had, uh, you know, cause I was 
junior high age when we got rid of them, um, which was like mid nineties. But then 98 was the time where they went to where they weren't worth the price of gas to haul them to town. I, well, I remember it as a good thing because that was my least favorite yeah. chore on that farm was to go clean up the fairing house every day. <laughs> yeah. I was the same way. Like I didn't want to deal with them hogs. And so when they were gone, it didn't really bother me, but, and then I look back and, you know, my grandpa spent his entire life learning about, you know, he loved hogs and it, going back to the cattle building too, he had a building there that was farrowing crates. And I feel like I should research more of how, how these buildings operate now before I talk too much about it, but I know how his operated and he would have sows um, inside and, and they would farrow in there, meaning they'd have their piglets. And he'd let them out every day onto a, what we called a feed floor. So we'd feed them out on the, you know, when they got big enough, we'd feed them out on the feed floor and then, or just let them out for a while. And then we'd open the door back up and run back in. And they, each sow would, it was always interesting because each sow would know right where they were going. They go right into the same crate with their, with their babies. You wouldn't have to push them or anything. And, uh, but yeah. And then when the piglets got big enough, these crates all opened up to where they were just, in the building and the sows run out and we fed them in there. And then once they were big enough to go outside, it was like cattle moving them out of a calving barn almost, or, or like, you know, we'd wean them in the building, get them healthy. And then they'd go back out in the pens, I think on, on, on feed floors is what they called them and stuff like that. But that was the, that, you know, he built that building in like the seventies. I think it might've been sixties. Um, but I'm sure somebody come along just like the cattle deal and was like, this is the way the industry's going. Um, if you're going to raise hogs in an efficient way, this is the most efficient way to do it. And he did it. And then, you know, in 20, 30 years, if you didn't have a building that would hold, you know, tens of thousands of hogs, you're broke. Um, and a lot of guys that had those buildings were broke too. And the only way they got to continue was if they got a contract with the packer. Um, and so, I mean, I feel like we're at that stage now where grandpa built his small hog barn because it's the efficient thing to do. Are we putting ourselves out of a business, you know, 10, 20 years down the road to where everything, you know, the last 10 months of its life needs to be completely confined, at least in this part of the country. Um, I'm sure buildings aren't a real big deal down where you're at, but if people are feeding cattle up here, I read about one. There's 35,000 head under roof at one um, place in South Dakota. It's actually the president, the new president NCBA's feed yard, I believe, has 35,000 head under roof. Um, That's bigger than the last president of NCBA's feed yard in Minnesota. I think they only had like 20,000, but it wasn't a building. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then the other one, the, the one before that was from your neighborhood, so. Did you know him? Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. But you know who I'm talking about. I can't remember his name. But he was out of Pratt. Uh, his feed yard was in Pratt. Past president of NCBA? Yeah, it would have been two years ago. So it would have been, yeah. So um, so he's a big way to get U.S. premium beef. Are you very familiar with U.S. premium beef? Um, Passingly, I know some of the I know some of the names that are on the board. Yeah, he's the secretary of the board. So I I could maybe look it up quick, but he he was at when 
when the chairman of the board spoke, uh, uh, gave testimony in the Senate as a, as just your average everyday rancher, um, I looked up what us premium beef was and who was, who was running it and who they are as a beef packer. And, uh, yeah, the secretary of the board was the president of the NCBA. Yeah, there could not possibly have been any sort of conflict of interest there. Right. No way. Oh, there and that's where I got into it because um, the, uh, yeah, the chairman of the board, whose father started U.S. Premium Beef. And U.S. Premium Beef, I don't have anything bad to say about it because um, I don't know that much about it. But I do know the two people who've testified in the Senate against market regulation one of them was the chairman of board of u.s premium beef and the other one was a feed yard that is a member of u.s premium beef um and they're both big kla guys um and so that's kind of my familiarity with them <laughs> so i mean as a company you look at what they did and it was it was pretty groundbreaking and innovative and they made a ton of money i'm pretty sure um in the deal but I think it was just to most people, if anybody's listening, it's wondering what the heck we're talking about. Um, I think it was a group of 25 guys got together and raised enough money to buy farmland national and which ended up becoming national beef. And at one point, so those 25 guys created us premium beef. Um, and at one point us premium beef was the majority owner of national beef. Um, and, and they're the fourth largest beef packer in the country. Um, and then they sold their holdings to a, I think they sold to a investment firm in New York. And then that investment firm in New York sold to Marfrig. So now they're, they're majority owned from a Brazilian company. Um, but us premium beef still owns 15%, I believe of national. Yeah. So, it, it, it kind of, that's one of those like really, really circular relationships. You've got a guy that says, Buy my bulls, they do good. And the same guy also own he's you know a big wig at NCBA. He owns part of US premium beef and he owns part of a packing plant. Like, yeah, I bet you do get premium for your cattle. I bet you really yeah. do. Yeah, and I'm yeah. The and the US premium beef. I mean, they published what they got. It was on their website, and they said they got 85 cents over cash market as an average. I don't think that was last year. I think that was the year before when I read their deal. Um, so if you're getting 85 bucks, 100 above cash price, you know, and guys are barely breaking even at cash or losing money at cash price or barely breaking even, you're you're at such a competitive advantage there. And so, you know, it's hard to blame people for wanting to be a member of that outfit. And, and you always have, you know, I don't, that's one thing I'd like to research and, and understand is how it really works because they talk about owning shackle space. And I think that's, that's what it gives you too, is, is you have your, you know, you for sure have your shackle space, but it's really, I mean, that, that is vertical integration there. If, I mean, <laughs> you know exactly where your cattle are going and there is no bidding going on. Um, but. Well, one of the one of the members of U.S. Premium Beef, that's without mentioning names, you probably know who I'm talking about too. I can drive through their ranch on the way to get to one of my processors. There hasn't been a blade of grass on that ranch since last July. Like yeah. they they've got everything, their feed, everything's on full feed. 
even the stuff standing in the pasture has been on full feed since I took some of the processor at the end of August last year. And those genetics, I, several people have bought bulls from that outfit that I know and have tried to run them on grass on a, on a lower energy budget than a full feed, full corn ration. It, they're lucky to get the, get a year's use out of those bulls before they fall apart and go backwards. Yeah. We've had that same kind of issue. That's a, I mean, that's getting into a whole nother thing about these, a lot of bull sales and these big Angus bulls where these guys have everything on feed, even if they're out on grass, they're still on feed, you know, all year round. And then, you know, we've had issues too, um, bringing them in and on a more of just a, where they're foraging, you know, they're, they're, they're just out on pasture and it's good pasture, but they just don't perform. Uh, Jerry Bohm is the guy's name. Bone, B-O-H-N. I think not... he is an owner of a feed yard in the Pratt, Kansas area. Oh, there's, there's Pratt feeders and then there's uh golden belt feeders, which is just a little bit North. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking it is Pratt feeders that he is a part of. I'll have to look into that. Um, we are, we are, I am kind of running short on time, so we've got to kind of start wrapping this up. Um, where can, where can everybody find you at on the internet? Where would you like to drive traffic? Yeah. Lonesome lands is what I'm, I'm pushing. And I keep telling, um, I keep saying I'm going to do more and do more and come out with more stuff. And I just get, I'm in the process of, of making that possible <laughs> because you know, for years I've made money with the horn deal and, and I've gotten to a point where that's going pretty good. And so I've spent so much time trying to get to this point that it's hard to let go of, but I do really want to spend a lot more time on lonesome lands. And so that's where to go. Lonesomelands.com. And then the YouTube channel is lonesome lands also, which is where a lot of people find me, but. Okay. Where do I need to go so I can sell you horns? You got horns? Yeah. Okay. The trouble is, the you, you mentioned Coriani. Yeah. They're Coriante. They got, they're full skulls, but I mean, that's just a hacksaw problem. Yeah. Um, the trouble is, I can get a lot of smaller horns, and I actually still have quite a few smaller horns, but it's the big ones that I need. Um, How big? The big ones. I mean, as big as you can get. <laughs> but anything over two feet is okay. is what I'm... Um, mainly looking for i can get i can get access to a lot of the smaller ones but there was a so it's interesting too you know this is a market that nobody probably even thinks about but i was buying from a packing plant that focused on uh you know i drive through your neck of the woods to get there so i've been down through where you are quite a bit i've been through dodge city quite a few times um probably not over I've been through Pratt once. I went to Dodge City and drove through Pratt one time. But anyway, doesn't um, Dodge City smell plant, great? What's that? Doesn't Dodge City smell great? <laughs> it's a neat town. And as a little kid, I mean, I've been into cowboy stuff since I was born. And my mom has this book that I would make her read me back before I can even remember. And it's all about Charlie Goodnight. It's a kid's book, but it, it's all this stuff. And it's, but it's interesting because I'd read about it for years and years and then finally, finally went there and I went through all the museums and everything. So, anyway, 
um most people are probably bored to death with it but i think it's pretty cool to see it and just to see the country really and to see where you know the herds came up and all that stuff but anyway um yeah there's a packing plant over there and uh they quit buying longhorn cattle here when during the drought i think it's because everybody was calling so many cows and longhorn cattle are you know this big old steers are a pain to deal with and so they just quit buying them because i was getting a lot of horns from them and then they quit buying them all together but now that cow prices, you know kill cow prices are getting back up there i'm wondering if they're gonna have a lot more horns because <laughs> i i would think you know i think that's probably where it came from that was my theory of why they quit buying longhorn cattle but a lot of the packing plants won't they just put them in rendering uh they don't even they just grind them up with the bones or whatever and they don't want to deal with me so yeah because you're not buying them a truckload or a train car yeah. load at a time well see the last when i really got a ton of them was 2015 and that's when you know kill cow prices got really high in that 2014 2015 area i i actually took a trailer down and and hauled a trailer you know i had 55 gallon drums full of horns on a flatbed trailer just a small one but um brought that i and i made a couple trips with the trailer bringing those back and uh but then, yeah now they don't have any so interesting interesting <laughs> i i have a, something most people don't really think about much i have a book for you since we're talking about hogs and hog houses and hog waste uh there's a book called wastelands okay the, uh, the name of the author escapes me right now, and I want to stay here with you and not go look it up. But uh, Wastelands, it talks about um, some lawsuits against Smithfield Foods down in North Carolina about hog waste, hog pollution, and air pollution. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's a good book. If you like Meat Racket, um, if you like Meat Racket, you'd, you'd probably get into Wastelands pretty good. Yeah, and that's this raw deal book. They get into the global climate change, all that stuff. So I'm, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't promote it too much, <laughs> because I get in. I mean, I don't know. I feel like I don't know. I, I I don't know what they say about it or what she says about it uh, just yet. But as far as that, that's a whole nother topic that we could go off on. But yeah, that's probably a whole nother podcast. <laughs> right. Well, um, I appreciate your time today, Jim. And yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It's anything you want to close it out with? Things. What's that? Anything you want to close out with? Not really. Just follow along, I guess. I'm I'm hoping to do a video on. Uh, well, I've been I smashed my drone. I wrecked my drone, so that kind of put a hold in the videos because I like to add that kind of stuff in. But I was going to do one on these NFL guys buying farmland, and then I'm going to do another one on the RFID types. So that's some plans going forward. I'll look forward to that coming on the Lonesome Lands YouTube channel soon. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're going to go ahead and get out of here then. And, uh, Jim, I'll let you go get on with your day. And, gang, go have a great week. Thank you. <laughs>